I'm Mark Peterson, and this is the FEMA Podcast. The FEMA Urban Search and Rescue Program is a framework for structuring local emergency personnel into integrated federal disaster response forces. These highly trained and specialized task forces complete with the necessary tools and equipment and specialized training and skills are deployed by FEMA in times of disaster. Urban Search and Rescue is considered a multi-hazard discipline, as it may be needed for a variety of emergencies or disasters, including earthquakes or hurricanes, typhoons, storms, tornadoes, floods, dam failures, technological accidents, terrorist activities, and hazardous materials release. On this episode, we have the unique opportunity to talk with Evan Schumann, who is a program manager for Ohio Task Force One one of the 28 teams in the FEMA Urban Search and Rescue System, about how these teams support disaster response operations in their home communities as well as around the nation. One of the programs that that FEMA runs is the Urban Search and Rescue Program. And uh, they are one of the programs within FEMA that we we don't often see because they're not co-located with us. But today we have... Evan Schumann from Ohio Task Force One, one of the FEMA uh, urban search and rescue teams, USAR teams. Uh, Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Oh, Mark, it is my pleasure to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Urban search and rescue teams are critical to uh, complicated responses, and uh, but they also serve the communities that they're in. So they have a bit of a unique mission, and, uh, and I'm excited to talk about that. But you can't really talk about the, the specifics of what the urban search and rescue uh, teams do without talking about um, the response system that supports them. So can you tell me a little bit about what the uh, FEMA's national USAR uh, system, um, why it was created, and and what it serves to do. Okay, so um, the urban search and rescue system that FEMA supports across the country is part of the response side of FEMA's mission, and we are 28 task forces that FEMA has as a partnership between the states that the task force is located in, the agency that is the sponsoring agency of that task force, and FEMA and their f- 10 FEMA regions. We were created at the, in the early 90s, uh, 89, 1990, following the Loma Prieta earthquake. Uh, FEMA uh, uh, reached out to the, to the nation and said, if we ever have uh, large disasters like this again, we need to be able to support our states in their time of need for search and rescue. Uh, we now know that as Emergency Support Function 9 under the National Response Framework, and FEMA and three other federal agencies are the primary agencies for ESF-9. Um, however, FEMA had the wisdom or the good idea back in the uh, early 90s that rather than making this a federal capability with the associated expense of the nearly 6,000 people that make up the national use our system being all federal employees, the associated cost of keeping us uh, in a state of readiness, uh, our requirement is to deploy by ground within four hours of activation, to be ready to board an aircraft within six hours of activation. There is an immense expense associated with that if these were full-time federal employees with full-time federal capabilities. So instead, they saw the capability out within the states at the local jurisdictions and said, we just need to partner with them. 
And so FEMA uh, brought us all together. They formed the initial 25. Three, three more teams were added later on in the late 90s. And uh, the, the partnership exists through a memorandum of agreement between the state EMA, the local governmental entity, FEMA, and the FEMA region are the signatories to these M- MOAs. And, and, you know, what urban search and rescue teams are we supporting? Are there, are there su- specific uh, types that we look at um, in order to make them part of the FEMA national USAR system? I mean, I, I would think, um, without knowing much about the, the USAR teams themselves, I would think that um, teams that are uh, part of a jurisdiction that is a large urban area would make sense. Uh, I mean, Chicago, New York, things like that. But are those the types of teams that make up the uh, the FEMA teams? Some of them, uh, not all of them. For instance, you mentioned Chicago, which would be Mabus. Uh, Illinois Task Force One is not one of the 28 teams in the USAR system. However, LA County uh, is California Task Force One. Um, Fairfax County, Virginia is Fair is Virginia Task Force One. Uh, a combination of FDNY and NYPD make up New York Task Force One, the Phoenix Fire Department, Arizona Task Force One. So, yes, yeah, some of our large uh, metro, depart- metro cities uh, with either their fire departments or their police departments, in New York's case, the city's Office of Emergency Management, um, make up the 28 teams across the USAR system. Um, so what is the difference between those those teams that are not part of the, the FEMA system versus FEMA teams? Uh, difference operationally, I couldn't speak to, but uh, the, the difference here is that when FEMA organized the system, they sent out invitation letters, they had an initial pl- uh, organizational meeting, uh, teams uh, came and and FEMA eventually worked through the process of identifying 25 of those teams to become part of the initial cadre of, of, of FEMA task forces. And then, like I said, later on in the 90s, uh, there was a recognition that maybe we needed a few more teams in proximity to the New Madrid sa- uh, seismic zone, the earthquake line under the Mississippi. And so they added three more teams that were more centrally U.S. located. Ohio was one of those teams. We, we did not become part of the USAR system until 1997, 1998. And so how many people generally make up an urban search and rescue team? Um, so FEMA requires us to be three deep in all deployable positions. A basic type one task force configuration is 70 uh, deployable positions and then 10 ground support personnel. So although 70 deployment positions times three would be 210 is the authorized staffing for for each of the task forces in the USAR system, plus uh, 10%, that 10% being for people who may not be deployable. There's also the FEMA incident support team. That's the command and control team that uh, exercises command over the task forces when they're deployed. Uh, The staffing for the incident support team, FEMA USAR IST, also comes from the 28 task forces. So we're authorized some additional personnel. Uh, My task force uh, varies in any given year from about 200 to 225 people. From numerous jurisdictions, and then they come together? Is that how it works? Uh, So it's not the same for all task forces. So specific to mine, yes. Uh, We have over 70 uh, agencies that provide personnel to my task force. Uh, The proper name for those is participating agencies in the USAR system. There's only one sponsoring agency. That's the organization that has executed the contract with FEMA. The sponsoring agency receives the funding from FEMA to to provide our yearly funding to keep the team uh, deployable. 
but a participating agency, in my case, is the one who supplies personnel to the task force. Um, some task forces are sufficiently large in their sponsoring agency. Again, I point to, uh, say, L.A. County, that almost all of their personnel come from just the L.A. County Fire Department. It's not just the people that we see on TV that are sort of climbing over the rubble. There's support and specialized um, capabilities on that too, right? Correct. So a FEMA team is broken down into six primary teams. We have the rescue team and the search team, uh, search team including the canines that you and I were talking about. Those are probably the people you see when the television is, is uh, videoing one of our operations. But like with many uh, organizations, there's a hazmat team who is uh, out front and in the lead when we might be responding to, say, a chemical environment. But mostly they're there to help ensure that the rescue team, when they're working down in a confined space, uh, they're monitoring the air uh, to make sure there's enough oxygen and, and other needs. Um, there's the medical team uh, who over his first primary mission is to oversee the members on the task force. And then when we encounter somebody in the disaster who needs medical help, then our medical team provides that support. Um, there is the planning team who helps uh, organize all of the uh, behind-the-scenes stuff. They produce the maps. They produce some of the orders that are handed to the rescue team to go do their assignments. Um, and then there is the logistics team, really the, the unsung heroes of the USAR system, uh, you know, rescue, search, all of those guys who go out into the field and execute the mission, uh, just like with our military, without a strong logistics element behind them, they wouldn't have the resources to be successful. And in the USAR system, uh, though, those guys are our logistics folks, and, and they are as, as extraordinary as they are in the military and other organizations. And there's also canines. Canines attached to part of the search team. So, right, we have two capabilities on in the search team. One would be the technical search, uh, search cams, the listening devices that our technical search specialist positions would be utilizing, and then also our canine search specialists, the handlers and their canine. Uh, and unique to the USAR system, we have not only live find canines who will be able to work a, a collapsed building or a, a debris field from a hurricane storm surge uh, kind of environment. But we also can bring for the uh, affected jurisdiction a, uh, a cadaver uh, capability, a human remains detection capability. So we have dogs that are trained to not only find live individuals, but also the uh, the, uh, the deceased individuals that may be trapped in that building and, and help the jurisdictions recover those bodies. Uh, because in the end, that is, is almost as important as recovering the live. Uh, it provides closure to family members. Uh, standard of practice is now to try to identify who's missing from your community and to actually find them either by calling relatives to see if they evacuated or to search their house or search the immediate area around uh, so that we bring, as best as we can, complete closure for the authority having jurisdiction. So I wanted to see if we could talk through just the process of deploying a team. Um, so if if a uh, an event were to require the need for urban search and rescue, what is the process by which you would get deployed? So federally, um, the state that is affected by the disaster uh, the state, the local jurisdiction in that state makes a request to the state uh, emergency management agency saying uh, we need additional search and rescue support in this area. The state EMA assessing the entire impact of the disaster uh, will look at the resources within the state first and allocate those resources, which is required by law. 
But in the event that the capability exceeds the resources within the state, then the state EMA would reach out to their FEMA region and request uh, additional uh, search and rescue support from FEMA. And then FEMA would, uh, would uh, the region would call FEMA headquarters, the, which is the, uh, where the USAR system is run from, and request uh, uh, whatever resources are necessary, type one team, type three team, Maybe they just want some boat capability, maybe a waterborne search. We would deploy a water mission ready package or a canine mission ready package. We have those abilities. And, and uh, all, the, all that equipment is just pre-staged and ready to go at a moment's notice. Uh, like I said, uh, we are required to have a, uh, from the time FEMA calls me and says, Evan, we want Ohio Task Force 1 to go to Florida and help in this hurricane, I have four hours in which to assemble the uh, whatever the appropriate number of people. Type 1 is an 80-person team. Type 3 is about a 45-person team. Uh, to assemble all of that and the appropriate equipment and actually be headed down the highway. Hmm. Um, you know, you mentioned a situation where a state may need uh, resources that they have within the state. Uh, recently, uh, uh, there were tornadoes that uh, affected a large area of Ohio, um, including the Dayton area, and your team responded to that. Can you tell me about that experience? Sure. So uh, actually, this was the first deployment of my task force within the state of Ohio. Uh, it came the day after uh, Lab- Memorial Day. Memorial Day, thank you. Um, we had four tornadoes in just Montgomery County. Uh, one was an EF4. I think two others were EF3. So it was a significant uh, impact to our county. Um, but the other real benefit of the urban search and rescue system is because we're not federal employees, we belong to our local jurisdictions. So in this particular case, we had uh, Ohio Task Force One personnel working within their own fire departments that were affected by this disaster, or they were part of regional or local response teams, uh, not just Ohio Task Force One, uh, but in the state of Ohio, we have eight homeland security regions. Each has their own collapse search and rescue team, and almost all of them are either led or have a significant number of Ohio Task Force One people on them. So for this particular night, we had key task force people in the most affected uh, jurisdictions from those tornadoes. We were quickly, including myself, I was working in the city of Trotwood by midnight for the EF4 tornado that went through there. Um, We were quickly able to get a good size up uh, from all of us that were working in the individual jurisdictions. And we were able to coordinate with the fire chiefs from those jurisdictions to say, hey, Uh, Come sunup, we're going to have a heck of a search and rescue mission going here. Um, We are advising you, uh, encouraging you to request these three resources in addition to what's here. Uh, If you can do that through your county EMA to the state, we can get that activated. And and it was a a home run. Uh, The chiefs made the phone calls. Uh, The county EMA director, Montgomery County EMA director, uh, immediately responded to those requests, called the state EMA. And uh, from about 2.30 when we were working these requests, by 7 o'clock the next morning, we had two of the other regional strike teams from Franklin County and in Hamilton, that would be Columbus and the Cincinnati area, plus a Type 3 activation of my task force and the Region 3 team, which is in Montgomery County. We were all in place come sunup at 0700 and were able to execute a day's worth of search and rescue missions at the direction of those fire chiefs from those communities. And by the end of the day, I don't have the exact figures, but I know we had cleared over 1,600 homes. Uh, We had helped uh, about 50 or 60 citizens that weren't so much as trapped, 
but maybe just hadn't seen anybody at, you know, at, by 10, 11 o'clock that morning yet. Uh, the communities were still getting, getting going. Um, we helped with some needs that might have been just water. Uh, we were able to help some folks recover a, a pet or something from their house. But mostly what we really did is, is help the fire chiefs have a strong sense of, of confidence that by 5 o'clock that day, the worst parts of their community had actually had somebody physically visit those areas, perform a quality level search so that there was uh, a strong can't guarantee that you can't do that in search and rescue, but a strong confidence that, that anybody who needed help or that was, was uh, trapped uh, would have been found. Um, you know, that's a great example of, um, of a deployment within a state. But um, what about when you're deployed out of state? What are some of the disasters that you've been deployed to recently? Uh, personally, I was down in Florida for Hurricane Michael last year. I was uh, in North Carolina for Hurricane Florence in 16. I spent two weeks with Region 2 for Hurricanes uh, Maria and Irma back in 17. My task forces were deployed to all of the, my task force was deployed to all of those uh, events also. And honestly, the magnitude of the disasters the last three or four years has seen almost a 100% activation of the 28 task forces. Uh, for much of the last three years in support of disasters. And, and when you when you land uh, in the area um, that you're going to be operating in, wh- what is the first thing that you're looking to do? So as a task force, uh, we, we don't ever freelancers show up unrequested. So we're either uh, activated at the request of a FEMA region as preparation of resources to be close by should one of their states request ESF-9 support. So you all do that under your surge accounts. Um, When a state makes a formal request, uh, fills out the resource request form and sends it to the FEMA region, uh, then we become contractually uh, uh, turned over to that state and we take our orders from the uh, authority having jurisdiction. So as an example for Hurricane Michael in Florida last year, the state of Florida activated their gold incident management team, and that team was charged by the state of Florida to oversee the search and rescue response in the affected area. Our incident support team then worked uh, in conjunction and took their orders from the gold incident management team, and then they issued the assignments that the gold incident management team wanted the USAR teams to do. We're not the only search and rescue in these environments. There's, of course, EMAC. Florida is a robust state with with many search and rescue capabilities, uh, including two FEMA teams. Um, And so uh, uh, we we work at the direction of the authority having jurisdiction. So, and that authority might sort of tell you this is the area and we, the task that we need you to do is to clear a residential area. Is that, is that right? And, or a, um, an area of commercial building, something like that. Yeah, usually uh, based on our size, we, we might be assigned to a large portion of a large community or we may get the entire community in a more rural environment. Um, but we ha- even have a set of standards for search. Uh, we can do hasty or focused searches. So if there's a nursing home that nobody's heard from for 24 hours, we might be asked to send a team specifically there and to confirm that you know they're only offline because the telephones are down or if there's something worse, we can report back. 
Uh, we can maybe do a primary or a secondary search of a community. Uh, and we have definitions of what those are and tactics associated with those assignments, and we provide that to the local fire chief uh, so that he has an understanding that when we are complete, uh, here is the probability that we would have found anybody we were looking for. Uh, very important that you can never guarantee to find everybody. Uh, that's not how search and rescue works. It's even at 9-11, after they had delayered the entire World Trade Center and, and moved it off, uh, you still periodically hear about stories of human remains, skeletal remains being found nearby. Uh, so you can't guarantee 100%. But we can get upper 80s, low 90s as a level of confidence for that chief that if there was somebody out there, we, we, we would have found them. Yeah, talk to me about that process of delayering a collapsed structure, because um, it, it it appears from a layman that it seems like a very meticulous process. Um, so why is that t task so difficult? The, the quickest way to get to live victims trapped under a collapsed building is to burrow down through the rubble to get to them. But that puts the rescuer in danger. It means we could also inadvertently move something that creates more injury to the trapped individual. Plus, after seven or eight days in like an earthquake environment where there is such widespread damage that uh, we just you know, ran out of days to get to a person who might have been alive after day one or two, but after day eight or nine have, have now passed away uh, without water or other medical treatment, it now becomes a recovery. And um, you don't risk a lot to recover. Uh, you risk a lot to rescue. And so the delayering now becomes the process of, of just peeling back the collapsed structure without endangering the rescuers, the crane operators, the people that are doing that in order to be able to recover the, uh, the victim of the disaster. You mentioned cranes. Um, you know, does heavy, heavy machinery um, become, get involved? Or do you use heavy machinery in order to do some of this delirium? It's one of the 19 positions. We call it a heavy equipment rescue specialist. It's part of the rescue team. Uh, the HERS guys have their own course in the USAR system, and that course involves a lot of crane operations. Uh, we don't operate the crane. That's The operator comes from the company that supplies the crane or the municipality that supplies the crane. But there is a set of, uh, of hand signals there is the process of rigging whatever needs to be removed, uh, how to do that. Um, remember, uh, if we're recovering even a, a deceased person, you want to treat it with respect. You don't want to do more damage. So if there is a piece of concrete or other debris laying on that individual, just yanking it off of them can do extensive damage, and that is, well, that's wrong. And so there is a process then, there's thought that goes into how to move that piece of, of rubble without doing additional damage, even to a deceased victim. And so that is what we teach in this class and, and how to work with the crane operators to do that. Um, it, it just seems like there must be just an amazing amount of training that goes involved. So uh, what is the process? Um, you know, as a team lead, I'm assuming that you're sort of facilitating uh, the need for training amongst all of your personnel. Um, what kind of training is available to the teams and how do you orchestrate that? Um, so there's a couple of answers to that. Uh, there is, in order to become a deployable member of the National USAR system, you have to meet the standards that are set by FEMA USAR for all of their 28 teams. There is a set of general training requirements that is, to some extent, computer, mostly computer-based. Um, 
bloodborne pathogens, hazmat refresher, that kind of stuff. Then we also have a uh, enhanced operations and contaminated environment course, which teaches the USAR, the new USAR system person, the specifics of Cyberni uh, uh, cash, Chemi- chemical, biological, um, nuclear, nuclear. Radio- radiological, and, and high explosive. Um, the the cash and the procedures we use for those types of mostly terrorism associated uh, events. Um, and that gets you through the general training requirements. Uh, to be deployable then in one of the 19 positions, you generally have to complete the training program for that position. So there is a technical search specialist course. There's a canine search specialist course. There's a, a structural collapse course. Uh, there's a medical team training course. All of those positions have a position-specific course. On my task force, that's the final training. Uh, we all general training. We send you to your your required ha- physical, and if you pass all of that, we send you to you get deployable course, and then you become a deployable team member for us. All that's really done is make you a basic level person, right? Now it becomes our job to turn you into the true specialist that your title says you are, and so we train in my task force about fourteen thousand hours a year across all of the task force members. Uh, Mo's, uh, every one of the teams trains at least six times a year. Some train as much as 12 times a year monthly. Uh, that can be a full day of training of, of whatever the team manager, at least in my task force, says this is what my team needs to train on to get better. Uh, then FEMA USAR, uh, tracking all of that, also requires their task forces once every three years to complete an operational exercise of 36 to 72 hours what the six teams that were down at Mastatatuck back in June for, for that exercise that we've been talking about, um, that accomplished that requirement for those six teams. Um, and then there's just the trainings that are beyond that. In order to be a, a rescue person on your department, you train there too. Um, uh, if funding allows, we, we send people to specialized stuff. Uh, the state of Virginia does a technical rescue challenge every year. Uh, there's a so they they come up with highly imaginative, very challenging technical rescue scenarios, and I'll send a group of ten to twenty of our rescue personnel down there every year, and they get a week long of of very specialized, in depth, high end, hardcore rescue training, and they bring those skill sets back to the task force and then pass it on to the rest of the team. And then on top of the training, there's also exercises, um, and some can be pretty large scale. And actually, one of the reasons why um, you're here with me today. Uh, conducting an after action from a major exercise that um, you helped put on at um, the uh, Muscatatuck Urban Training Center in, um, in Indiana. Uh, and, and that was an experience where you were able to uh, work alongside some international teams. Um, I, I assume that's not run-of-the-mill training, um, but that must have been a pretty unique experience. It was the first time we had done much of everything you just said in the National USAR system. Um, so uh, the United States has an immense amount of search and rescue capability um, within the nation, but even we acknowledge there could be disasters in this country that exceed the capability of, of the United States to adequately respond to. And again, search and rescue is a very time-sensitive uh, uh, process. Um, even if you are trapped in an area where you're not otherwise physically hurt, but you cannot get out, Three, four, five days without water can be a, a life-ending uh, time frame. And so getting to you becomes very time-sensitive. 
And if uh, and we acknowledge there could be a large earthquake on the uh, Cascadia subduction zone along the Seattle northwestern United States. Uh, specific to the exercise you mentioned, it was an earthquake on the New Madrid seismic zone, a fault line that underlies the Mississippi. Uh, maybe even more catastrophic than a west coast because on this side of the country, we don't always build for large-scale earthquakes. Uh, we don't expect them on the east side of the country. And so... Um, uh, in these events, uh, should we overwhelm even the resources in the United States, then leadership uh, has acknowledged we might have to turn to the international community. And there are uh, 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 an additional set of search and rescue teams that are e pretty much equivalent to the FEMA task forces and capability and equipment. Uh, it's part of the United Nations INSUROG uh, organization. Uh, we have two teams in this country that are a part of that: uh, Virginia Task Force One and and, uh, and California, excuse me, yeah, and California Task Force Two. Um, and those teams uh, are uh, coordinated under the U.S. State Department and the United Nations. They're also part of the uh, FEMA, uh, FEMA USAR system. Uh, but we, uh, in this exercise, acknowledge that uh, we might need those outside resources, and so we uh, invited the Canadian who have a network of six teams that they're starting to develop, and in this case also the uh, country of Australia uh, brought over um, uh, a 60-person team to participate in our exercise. The work that you do on these deployments has got to be just grueling. Um, it's got to be exhaust physically exhausting and, and in a lot of ways probably emotionally exhausting, right? Um, what, what is it, how often are you rotated when you're on a deployment? How much rest do you get, downtime? Um, so the stated requirements by FEMA for deploying a task force is that our personnel have to be committed for a 16-day deployment. That's an anticipation of a day of travel on each end and 14 days of operation in between. So if the event were to exceed 16 days, then we have mechanisms to either bring a brand new task force in and let the other one go home, or we can maintain the equipment and just uh, bring in, remember we were three deep, as I said earlier, we could bring in a brand new set of people and replace the ones that have been deployed. Um, so basically the answer to your question is, is 14 days of operations and a day of travel on each side. What are some of the common characteristics of uh, urban search and rescue team members? Hmm. Uh, we are predominantly from the public safety forces within the United States, so mostly fire and police make up our, our membership, but not exclusively. Uh, our canine handlers uh, quite often come from uh, other backgrounds. Our, uh, we FEMA task forces deploy on a type 1 team with two uh, emergency medicine certified doctors. They, of course, come from the hospital systems. Um, some, well, in some task forces, they might also come from the military. If they're in close by a military base, some of their doctors might be from the military then. Um, and then our uh, FEMA task forces on a Type 1 also deploy with two uh, uh, civil engineers, structural engineers who have been to a special training in how to assess and, and mitigate a collapsed building, right? Most civil engineers deal with only a building that's static, that's standing there. Our engineers have to deal with a building that's moved, um, which is not a real good environment for a building. 
And so we send them to a special course, and, and they too then are usually, not exclusively, but usually not from the, the public safety forces, private practice, or, or engineers associated with municipalities. Uh, but there are exceptions. Uh, the docs and engineers safe with New York Task Force One are actually associated uh, with their fire department and, and EMS departments. But, you know, more than that, I mean, you have to have a passion for this work, mm. right? And so what motivates uh, the, the team members? Um, well, of course, I can't speak for the other near 6,000 folks, but uh, but on my task force, my experience with my team members, it's an absolute commitment to servicing their fellow citizens. Um, uh, we don't get just the run-of-the-mill firemen or policemen on, on a task force. These are the high... The, the high-end, uh, AAA, strong personality, strong achievers, the leaders for the most part in the system. And, and so they want to lead. They want to be in these environments. They, but their commitment isn't to, to self-satisfy themselves in this respect. It's to, it's to actually serve their citizens just like they do in their own departments. Uh, it's just another way for them to serve. And... Um, and, and, and I can't tell you the privilege it is to to be able to be in charge of an organization with a group of Americans like this. Uh, so much of the world sees maybe the uh, the worst side of us sometimes in this country. Are the people who staff the USAR teams are are the people we really should hold up and and say this is who Americans are. These are who we are proud of. Um, I, I couldn't be more proud to be in the position I am in. We welcome your comments and suggestions on this and future episodes. Help us to improve the podcast by rating us and leaving a comment. If you have ideas for future topics, send us an email at FEMA-podcast at FEMA.dhs.gov. If you'd like to learn more about this episode or other topics, visit FEMA.gov slash podcast.